0: Hello and welcome to Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and this programme marks Podularity's second anniversary, and I'm delighted to say that I'm welcoming back an old friend of the programme, Cambridge Professor of Classics Mary Beard, for her third appearance since we began. On previous programmes, Mary has talked about her books on the Roman Triumph and Pompeii. When we met last month to record the interview you're about to hear, the subject of her discussion was Mary's new book, It's A Don's Life, which appears next week. This is the book of Mary's very successful blog, A Don's Life, on the Times Literary Supplements website, in which she muses on the world, ancient and modern, and the place of academics within it. Topics she covers range from what the Romans wore under their togas, and what made them laugh, to the place of Amy Winehouse lyrics in Cambridge literature exams, and whether Prince Harry should have gone to Afghanistan. When we met to record the interview, The obvious first question was how a Cambridge Classics professor got started as a blogger.
1: I got started very reluctantly as a blogger when every newspaper it was going into uh, was was exploring its online identity. And one of the ways of exploring your online identity was having a blog. And I work on the Times Literary Supplement very part time. And the editor said to me, we're trying to kind of develop some. A blog profile uh, along with all of the times would you like to do one and i'm surprisingly obedient when it comes to editors of newspapers and so i said yes but i was fully confident that it wouldn't you know, i just thought this would be a three months wonder and then i shall have given up this and i have to say i was slightly suspicious of the whole medium and you know, i thought yeah, I don't usually think have thoughts about dumbing down, but if I was to think about dumbing down, a blog would have been what dumbing down was about. That's how I kind of felt. I felt, well, I'm going to give it a try because that's what I've been asked to do. But this isn't going to be for me, is it?
0: And what when you decided to give it a try? What did you think you were going to try out? Did you have a, did you have an idea of the kind of things that you wanted to um, expand uh, upon?
1: I was I was terribly ignorant. I mean, I suppose. I thought, insofar as I thought I could write about anything, I thought I could write about what it was like working in a university, because you know, people have such terrible preconceptions, particularly of Oxford and Cambridge, you know, that you know, we're swanning around in pumps in the afternoon, coughing port in the evening, um, dressing up in silly clothes and mm. you know occasionally making a trip to the mm. library. I thought it'd be, it would be fun to show how that wasn't true. And I thought it would also be fun to talk about the ancient world sort of as discoveries happened. There's even in newspapers there's quite a long lead time. You know, somebody mm. discovers a bust of some Roman in the bottom of a river. Yeah, and it's still tomorrow or the next day before you can get it into a paper. And in academic life it would be you'd be writing about it well, you might write about it instantly, but it would come out in two years' time. So the idea of Having instant response, right. particularly because people talk such tosh about classics on the radio. You know, even the venerable kind of things like the Today programme, you know, they always fall for the for the obvious, simple and uh, and apparently charismatic solution. You know, here we have found a new sculpture. It must be Julius Caesar. And the pleasure of being able to say at 8.50, after you've heard mm-hmm. this rubbish at 8.30, mm-hmm. look, come on, think again. How do we identify a sculpture? That seemed quite fun.
0: And what about the interactive element of it? Was that something you were sort of taking on board at the start, or is that something that sort of surprised you?
1: Well, I suppose because I wasn't really a blogger before. I mean, I'm not having—I mean, a blogger in the sense of not having read blogs—I didn't quite realise about the interactive element. I didn't sort of realise that part of the game was people writing in. But then, obviously, before I started, I wasn't stupid. I looked around, what kind of blogs there were. On the market, and discovered that that was a huge part of it—not just a post, not not just one of the possibilities of the blog, but that was very the kind of key element in it. And I was horrified actually when I looked at this stuff because most of the comments, especially when there were loads and loads of them, have, you know, you know, perfectly decent article, you know, on the Guardian blog site, and a hundred rants oh. following it of uh, people simply kind of splurging with prejudice often not particularly related to what the blog said mm. and i thought you know dearie me you know how do you this is all very well but when it's actually ranting at you maybe, maybe this won't be very pleasant yeah you know, getting up at breakfast and turning on the turning on the computer and just discovering a load of abuse you know is that is that what you need so i was a bit tentative but of course you know you're you, you torn two ways, are not you? Because I also wanted comments because that was clearly the, you know, the Mar- sign of success, you know, Margaret's success is having comments and so, so there's kind of a bit of ambivalence here.
0: What if I have a blog and no one comes? Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> right. It's a bit...
1: Yes. It's my party sort <laughs> of scenario. But I don't know why, but for the most part, my commenters weren't... haven't turned out to be the ranting kind. And in fact... I mean, I think this isn't just false modesty. I think some of the best things that have come from the blog to the book have actually been the comments because they've engaged, you know, wittily, funnily, intelligently with the points that I've been making. Sometimes I think upstaging my uh, my original post, you know, with a well-aimed dart. And they come from all walks of life and all over the world. That's what's really amazing about it. And I had one comment, not in the book, actually, but, um, from an ex-Cabinet minister who was reading it. There are people who live in... One guy lives... Who's a common a frequent commentator, lives in Swaziland. There are senior academics, sometimes under their own names, sometimes under pseudonyms. There are just people from everywhere. And that's also... It's kind of exciting because, again... And the web has obviously changed this. But normally, even in journalism, you're speaking to a relatively small geographical market with a blog that's, you know, it's comments sans frontier, really.
0: You confess, though, in your essay at the end of the book that you suspect there may... Be anonymous, pseudonymous commentators under your own roof or in your own family.
1: Yes, I have a very, very strong suspicion that um, both my husband and my son (laughs) (laughs) have, uh, perhaps, some of the loonier comments (laughs) on this. I think because that's, of course, (laughs) that's the the pleasure and the danger of the blog. It's a bit Mm. like the the Amazon.co.uk book reviews. Mm. (laughs) You know, the pseudonymity is is. um, can be the order of the day, so it's uh, so it's very um, yes. I look at I look at the BDI and I say, look, oh, here's somebody's really angry. Mm. Is <laughs> yeah. it then?
0: Slightly bluff. It seems it seems to me that after your initial scepticism, though, you took to it like a proverbial duck to water. I mean, is that is that true? Once you once you were sort of launched, it seemed like you were you were away.
1: Yes, I can't imagine not doing it. It was funny, and I think, I think there was two things that got me really into it. One was the pleasure of the commenters and finding that there was a kind of whole new set of relationships I had, which became quite enticing. But I think the other was that I I realised, and I shouldn't have realised this before, but it was only on doing it that I saw the implications. I realised that it wasn't, it didn't have to be a dumbing down medium at all. In fact, quite the reverse. What really makes the difference between a blog and a newspaper article, however learned, The newspaper article is of course the links so i found that i could talk i hope interestingly about sometimes quite abstruse topics because i could just link people to the data if for example you want to talk about i'm taking this out of the air really if you want to talk about the self-presentation the pr the spin doctrine of romans in the first century BC AD, and how like it might be to our own politicians. Then you want to refer to the Emperor Augustus's own autobiography, the *Res Gestae*. Well, that's not, you know, that's not household knowledge, actually. And you'd veer away from it in a newspaper because you'd think, mm. i are got to say, oh, no, this, this, you know, it's not, it's not going to, it's not going to add to your point. It's just going to confuse people." Now, on a blog, you can put a link. To the whole text, it's not all that long, so that you can talk about Augustus's Rose Guest Time and they can click on it and they can read it in Latin, they can read it in English, they can read a little summary, or they can read the Wikipedia entry. Um, and uh, so you can, you can write for many levels of knowledge. Yes. I mean, I'm not talking about writing for clever or stupid people, that's not it. I, I hope that I'm writing my blog for people who are intelligent, but they might be ignorant about what I do. But you can entirely even out the yes. the knowledge factors.
0: You can sort of penetrate to different levels. You can go to the level that suits yeah. you best. Yeah. There was a very nice quote that you you had in the book where you said that the the links are not just like footnotes; they're actually like three D specs. And I thought it was quite a nice yes, way of looking at it. I
1: think it. I yes, I pinched that from somebody writing in America. I think it in New York or the New York Times. And I think that's that is what I came to realise that it was a that there was a series of dimensions mm. to the information that people could have so that they could you know, you could go to my blog and learn things. You know, you could you know, it could be a little course in classics, but it doesn't have to be, because you might not be interested in that, you might have read that already and you might want to explore, you know, the other directions that my mm. links are taking, like education policy or whatever.
0: Now the question you've clearly set yourself up for now is <laughs> that being so, it's now appearing as a book in, yeah. in printed form. So there's obviously there's obviously yeah. a loss there. Yeah. So yeah. what what um, prompted you to go into print with it?
1: Um, well, the true answer. I mean, the true answer is a publisher friend who I much trust. and <laughs> much trust is the absolute central part of this. Said that very likely edited and selected, it would actually make a really nice book, the, some of the posts put together, with the comments. And he was pretty clear, as I was, that it's a different commodity as a book, partly because you don't have links. But on the other hand, I think that there are losses, clearly. And that, there's also gains and changes, which finally made me think that it wasn't, simply self-regarding to publish publishers because I think actually it's extremely good fun and it changed the, na- the fun side of the blog changes in the book and you get a different side to it and I think one of those things is simply the bookness of it actually it's flipping and browsing in a book is still a pleasure a huge pleasure that you don't get online Hmm. you know you don't have to scroll down you can actually flip the pages and i think that's wonderful and it enables the the blogs to be read in different orders you can go through to the kind of topics that interest you much more easily than the click and search Hmm. program and i think in some ways they look different over time and then some of them have gained i mean um, on several occasions, I've had a bit of a rant myself, I suppose, about what people say about how you get into particularly Oxford and Cambridge. You know, this is the, you know, every quality press does this, interview season. You know, here are the mad questions that those strange, weird dons at Oxford are going to ask you. You know, like, would you like to be a grapefruit? And what are you supposed to say? And all this kind of rubbish. Now, part of what the blog does when i'm blogging is instantly react to that but i discover that over <laughs> over the years there have been three or four or five posts which actually do relate to oxbridge interviews put together like this uh, i thought well if i had a kid it was going to do an interview or was thinking of applying let's say to Oxford and Cambridge was a bit put off by all this now it's all together and I'd give them the book I think it I think people would learn in a different way more consistently from it and also I think the other thing they'll be able to read this in different places because I have a very very strong suspicion and this is partly because you know when people are hitting on your blog (laughs) my blog and I think every blog, it's not just me. My blog is a, by and large, it's what people read during the day. You've got 10 minutes to go at your desk before you've got that lunch date or your meeting, let's say, meeting, and what should I do? And you, You've got a few blogs that you read because hits go down at the weekends, not up. They go down in the <laughs> summer holidays. You know, these are people, people actually blog in the interstices of work. Now, put it in a book, and oh, they can read it in the loo and they can read it on the train. I know people sort of do actually do their email and stuff on the train now, but they don't take their laptop to the loo. And the loo is one of the,
0: the, <laughs> the best... Last, the last bastions of freedom.
1: Freedom, <laughs> yeah, you know, a laptop-free area. You know, I'm sure there will be little invention which will enable this quite comfortably very soon, but for the time well, you're being... Well,
0: on your iPhone, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: the time being you know i hope that this is taking my blog to the country's lose really
0: now the book is a lot of fun and i wouldn't want to sort of detract from that but if if we're looking at the sort of the serious things that seem to emerge from it the question of access to higher education and issues of class and gender and how they all sort of relate seem seem to me to be a recurring theme something that you keep kind of working away at i mean is that is that a sort of fair? Yeah. representation of one of the main yeah. things that animates you in that's the book. One
1: of, that's one of the main themes and, and partly because it's one of the main things that I think about daily in my job and that's not only at you know what people call the admissions season for Oxford and Cambridge but um, you can't teach classics and you can't teach a university like Cambridge which is a intellectually elitist university making every effort not to be socially elite without Constantly reflecting on those kind of points and also actually feeling deeply, deeply depressed by the way it gets, those kind of issues get reported in. In the newspaper and talked about in Parliament. I mean, it's absolutely clear that every Labour minister who's having a rough time can always get his backbenchers or well, her backbenchers back on side, you know, by having a bit of Oxbridge bashing and uh, you know, finding a, a, a an extraordinary case of someone who ought to have got in, they say, to Oxbridge but didn't. And I think what the book does in a way is shows that. We're, look, people, I'm an ordinary Oxbridge Don. There's, you know, I'm not, there's nothing special about me. I'm ordinary and I think about the things we all think about. And we're always reflecting on how to take the message that Oxbridge is for anybody who's clever within our capacity to take them, of course. Um, it's not just for toffs. And I hope that you get the sense from reading the book that I'm thinking about it, I Me mean doing something. I'm going out to schools. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's a long train journey, but off we go. Because you want to take that message out. You know, we're not sitting here reluctantly being dragged into the 21st century. We've been doing it for ages. And you know, there's nothing I like better than seeing how particularly classics as a subject can really, can cease to have that preponderance of toffs. There were clever toffs, but there were toffs nonetheless starting it. Because I think the bottom line, and this is what really kind of works you up when you read newspaper reports, You know, why on earth does anybody imagine, like so many journalists seem to do, why does anybody imagine that somebody like me would want to spend their time <laughs> teaching you know, the sons and daughters of a very limited uh, sector of the British upper class? I and mean, of course we don't. And I think that Partly because the book gives a sort of feeling of life in a university like mine as it is lived. I hope it conveys that sense. You can't read this book and think, that well, I want to just teach TOFs.
0: The, the problem arises, though, doesn't it, when the state system, as it has done, withdraws from the teaching of classics, classical languages, and increasingly withdraws from the teaching of modern languages. You, you, you write about that. So yeah. you, you might want to have the playing field as level as you possibly can. But on one hand, you're talking about maintaining standards yeah. of excellence, and yet the people who are applying mm-hmm. don't yeah. have access in the first yeah. place to the yeah. kind of requirements that you yeah. traditionally have made.
1: Yeah, and I think that puts a big onus on elite universities. And when I use the word elite, I'm constantly meaning intellectually elite. This is for a highest level of scholarship. It puts a big burden on intell- in intellectually elite universities to be able to do something to level that playing field. So one of the things we've done in Classics recently is we've extended the course, the standard undergraduate course, for some students from three to four years. So that in the past, in order to do Classics in Cambridge, up until about 10 years ago now, I suppose, a bit less. You had to have Latin A level, didn't we? Would teach you Greek from scratch, but you had to have Latin, and we did that in three years. And that had been very successful, but there were clearly people who were minded and capable and wanted and enthusiastic to do Latin and Greek. You didn't have the opportunity, so we managed to. And it takes work and funding. We managed to get a four-year course instituted so people come up and they have a preliminary year learning Latin even if they've done their Latin before yeah. and then they join in the main three-year course and that was invented specifically in order to to meet the re- the reasonable objection it's no good banging on about how you want everybody here if, if most schools can't or, or, yeah. or won't meet your requirements and there are all kinds of initiatives like that but I think Nevertheless, something has to be done about that. I think at school level, now, I, you know, I'm the last person to knock teachers in primary or secondary schools who do, you know, a fantastic job and working harder than almost anybody else in the land. I suspect, but it it is always very easy to blame the universities for this instead of thinking about what is going on at schools. I mean, it's well-known, people at the Sutton Trust have made this absolutely clear, it's it's well-known that some of the disincentives, many of the disincentives to applying to Oxford and Cambridge are those mouthed by the schools to their kids, not, you know, (laughs) we're going out and doing a, I think, a very good campaign to, you know, make people see that Oxford can be for them if they're smart. It's no good if if you're not. Intellectually, well, I, could, I don't mean intellectually. I mean academically smart. But you know, this isn't a, this isn't a place of social elitism. And then you know that what happens, you know, in the weeks after you've gone, is that students, sixth form students, are being put off. Not by us. Sometimes we might inadvertently. think we wouldn't go and study with her. You know, not all publicity is good publicity. <laughs> um, but they're being put off by people saying, "Oh, I think you'd be better off somewhere else," and mouthing all the old stereotypes which are no longer true. You know, you have to use the right knife and fork, and if you don't know which wine it is, you know, it's all rubbish. Mm. So there is a. You know, there's a big job to be done at all levels and I think I mean I think that in a funny way I'm a classicist and you know, I've got a a, you know, a special brief to stand up for Latin and Greek. But what would worry me more about the British educational system in some ways was the the massacre that's being done on modern languages. That you know, German is you know rather ungracefully going down the tubes by mm. all I hear. And the idea that the government in you know with its own euro project can say you don't have to study a language up to age 15 16 you can get out of it is I'm afraid bonkers now in you know, in the book and in the blog I have an occasional go at this because it seems to me one of the most important and rather neglected areas of of modern culture. I am mean, told by a friend who's trying to do more about this actually actively politically than I am, that one of the problems about the next Olympics is going to be we can't provide the translators. <laughs> you know, in some ways it doesn't matter. You know, it's only the Olympics, but it's a nice, it's little, nice little indication. And I go and do things now with the European Research Council, who are busy giving grants big research grants across Europe to, to young and senior academics and there are you know, Euro panels which are not quite as ghastly and bureaucratic as they sound adjudicating these and interviewing students and the linguistic competence of the young academics from the rest of Europe just stands out compared mm-hmm. with they are fluent conversationally in more than one European language everybody says but everybody speaks english and so our kids and our young lecturers or whatever you know cuz i think it goes right up the pole don't need to learn other languages but that might be true in a way but when you get to the bar where the work's done <coughs> the real work's done unless yes. you're going to chat away in french you're on the out mm. or german or yes. whatever
0: We've kind of talked about this sort of demystification. It seemed to me demystification was one of the, the aims of the blog. But one of the other ones, it seemed to me, was provocation. Now, tell me about tell uh, me about this uh, function to provoke. Well,
1: no, no, no blog is a good blog unless it unless it kind of annoys somebody sometimes, you know. Otherwise, uh, it's entirely missed its opportunity. And I think what you what is fun and what has got people going about the blog, and some of these posts are in the book. are... Uh, are the places where I speak my mind? I wouldn't, I mean, it was, the, the blog was given a, a a byline when I first started it, which I now find terribly embarrassing, but I'm stuck with it, of wickedly subversive. Mary B is a wickedly subversive commentator. And I thought, this is actually dreadful, isn't it? Because you It's know, your
0: Homeric epithet. It's going to be stuck it, with you forever. I'm
1: afraid it's like, you know, m- you know moon-eyed here or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And you know, I thought, well, wickedly subversive on occasion, but how could you be for wickedly subversive forever, you know? <laughs> that's sort of a contradiction in terms. However, I think you know, amongst my targets in the world, uh, they're friendly targets, you know, as well as demystification and putting a side right for classics, it is kind of cant and doublethink, And I do try from time to time, particularly when the general media are going soppy over various issues to have a bit of straight talking and these posts do tend to get rather more comments and rather more ranting comments than others. One in the book that got enormous numbers of who do you think you are kind of comments was a blog about the fires of Greece a few years ago which for a while looked as if they were threatening the museum at Olympia where the major fifth century amazing amazing and wonderful fifth century greek sculpturist from the sanctuary olympia and i said in my blog that we still didn't actually know what the fate was and we all hoped it was going to be good and that everything had survived but actually if olympia was burnt down (laughs) Wouldn't we actually be slightly relieved that some of the sculpture from Olympia was in Paris? <laughs> right. You can imagine, you can imagine that it's got an enormous amount of...
0: Actually, it got translated into Greek quite quickly, didn't it?
1: It got translated into Greek and put in a newspaper. And the newspaper said, you comment on her blog. Now, yeah. it got translated rather kind of crudely into <laughs> Greek and... The commenters obviously thought that I'd said that the Greek heritage should be split up and sent around the world for safekeeping, which I hadn't. But I do think that, you know, that there is an issue about cultural property that we just simply have to face, that the stuff that's from Iraq in the British Museum is safe Hmm. and the stuff from Iraq in Iraq is not safe. Now, in Greece, it was natural disaster, but there is something about great, great works of art uh, that, you know there's safety and dispersal and the kind of as I said in the air and a spare notion you know don't put Harry and Wills on the same plane Mm. and and Harry talking of Harry he
0: also seemed to generate a lot of comment (laughs)
1: Harry and when Harry was serving in Afghanistan and everybody was talking about Harry's heroism I wrote a blog and said look you know it's fine it's a good job if Harry wants to be in the military and do what soldiers do fine but don't let's go from that to calling him a hero. You know, and you know, also let's remember that uh, you know when Harry's back in the country, he tends to do things that are far from heroic. You don't wipe that out necessarily by just going and sitting behind a computer screen in Helmand. You know, mm. dangerous it might be. And I also added a few choice comments to that because I was it's quite fun to get in a classical parallel about what a problem people, royal families and imperial families, always have with the second son. Because second son's always the difficulty, you know. Why do we have poor old Domitian coming to the throne at the end of the Flavian dynasty being such a disaster? Because he's always groomed to be the second son. And this got so... Um, this, people got so riled and said, you know, I should try it, down, being down the barrel of a gun in Helmand. I bet Harry was never down the barrel of a gun. But the Daily Mail picked this up and they wanted to do, uh, they asked me to do a a print version Mm. for the Daily Mail, which I thought was surprisingly broad minded of the mail, seeing usually their um, beard and the Daily Mail don't usually see eye to eye. (laughs) And they printed it, edited it beautifully, they printed it nicely, though they did put a heading by saying this was, you know, Mary Beth's art of views on Prince Harry. These are views with which the Daily Mail does not necessarily agree.
0: Just in case, just to inoculate them. <laughs> Last question, Mary. You've taken to blogging with such eclat. I was wondering if we can look forward to Mbeard on Twitter and maybe even Mbeard Podcasts in the future.
1: Oh, dear. You see, now, I have to confess, and I was trying not to confess this, because standing up for online culture and, and it not being dumb, dumbing down, I, I, kind of, I can't get over the fact that Twitter is... You know, a bridge too far on the kind of internet generation. You know what can you say? I am having a cup of coffee. So, you know, meeting Susie soon.
0: Well, <laughs> what you can say is ten things you didn't know about the Romans, and put in the um, the link. So it's a kind of dissemination medium.
1: It, I, look, okay, Georgia convincing me that <laughs> I, I must I must get a better line. And, about- it's,
0: and it's low. It's low investment in terms of time.
1: I must get a... Well, that's the trouble. I must get a better line about Twitter because I think it's my, my weak link because I just... I haven't bonded with Twitter. Mm. If you were to say to me that it was a dissemination medium, then I'd feel much happier about it than if it's a kind of... You know, Stephen Fry is telling his many fans that he's got a bit of a headache. Mm. You know, that's... It's, it actually seems... You know, there is a, a reasonable query about a blog about quite how self-indulgent it is mm. well I think those queries are amplified in the Twitter medium though I have to say I was I had one little kind of flutter, flutter about <laughs> tweeting, <laughs> a flutter about tweeting, a few months ago, I was at a conference. This is a flitter. A flitter. <laughs> uh, and Charlotte Higgins, who's the arts correspondent at The Guardian, was at a classical conference and Charlotte's an next classicist and She was deciding she'd report in The Guardian, particularly online, um, on her blog in The Guardian, from the conference. And I suddenly realised that she was twittering in the middle of lectures. Mm. So it would be saying things like, Richard Seaford is currently talking about the Greeks as environmentalists and he thought well I don't quite know how, ex- how popular a Twitter post that's mm. going to be mm. but I suddenly thought gosh maybe academic conferences and lectures just as they're going on at the very yes. minute yes. that they're happening are being spread that seemed mm. sort of exciting though I didn't know quite what the the sort of ultimate impact is going to be.
0: Here's, here's my prediction I predict by the end of the year Embiid will be Twittering and enjoying it.
1: Um, bottle of champagne on that? <laughs>
0: well, obviously, you can, you can earn a <laughs> bottle of champagne very easily, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I
1: hadn't thought of that, George. All right. We, I, I have to say, although I would say at this point, not a chance, Beard's past record would suggest he might be right. Mm.
0: Thank you. <laughs> I was talking to Mary Beard about It's a Don's Life, which is published by Profile Books on the 5th of November in paperback As I mentioned at the start this programme marks the second anniversary of Podularity and there are lots more good things to come in its third year, including, very soon an extensive interview with 2009 Booker Prize winner Hilary Mantel There's also a new series of videos of author interviews in the works and lots more content planned for the website Remember that it's free and easy to subscribe Just go to iTunes and type Podularity in the search box Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.